0: Good morning, Southside. Please uh, join me in reciting the Lord's Prayer from Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. Let's pray together once more and ask our kind father to bless our time. Father, we are thankful for you. You are worthy. You're worthy of everything we have. And I do pray that you would help us to build our life on the rock. We need your help. Life is hard. We need your help, so we ask you to help us to live for you. Help us to build our life on you. We're thankful for your grace when we fail to do that. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Help us to hope in you. For with you there is steadfast love and you will redeem us. We pray for our members here at Southside who have not attended in some time, that you would bring them back, that your spirit would be a work in their lives and they would see the value of your church in their lives. Would you bring them back to us? We pray for other churches in the city as well that are gathering this morning. We pray for Broadview Baptist, that you would be with them as they meet and that Christ would be central and that your word would be taught with clarity and that you would bless They're meeting together and it would be one more step in the long obedience of faith. Father, we ask that you would continually, increasingly conform us to the image of your Son. As the Apostle Paul prayed regarding the church at Galatia, that Christ would be formed in us. And God, so would you do that as we open your word by your spirit, we ask for your work in our lives. We pray it through Christ. Amen. Well, in the book of Haggai, the Lord says, now this is what the Lord Almighty says, give careful thought to your ways. Last week I shared this quote by a secular Stoic philosopher named William Irvine, and it had haunted me. I read it later in the week. And I want to I read it again. I think I have a slide so that you can see this. He's talking about the potential of misliving. He says, there's a danger that you will mislive. That despite all your activity, despite all the pleasant diversions you might have enjoyed while alive, you will end up living a bad life. There is, in other words, a danger that when you are on your deathbed, you will look back and realize that you wasted your one chance at living. Instead of spending your life pursuing something genuinely valuable, you squandered it because you allowed yourself to be distracted by the various baubles, think trinkets, the various trinkets life has to offer. God says, consider your ways. You know, part of how I envision my job is to be a mouthpiece for God in hopes that you won't mislive. Or to put it another way, it's to help you die well. It's to help you finish well. It's so that as best as possible on your deathbed, you're not filled with regrets. I think there's always gonna be some measure of regret living in a fallen world, but we want those to be as few as possible. And I wanna help you that ends. You know, life is so hectic and busy and frenetic that we can be numbed and distracted, and before you know it, we've mislived. We may do well at work, but ruin our marriage. We may ensure our kids make it to that dream school or play college sports, but fail to disciple them in the ways of Jesus. You may earn that degree or a couple degrees, but fail to attain wisdom. May have been up to date on the latest Netflix nonsense, but never had a spiritual connection to the Lord Almighty. Get that promotion. You made bank. But your spiritual life was poor in the things that matter most. The way Jesus would word it here in Matthew 16 is you gain the whole world, but forfeit your soul. And so how are you living? What is it that you're living for? How do you not mislive? Well, the Bible helps us. In fact, Matthew does. We've been as a church in the gospel according to Matthew for a while now. We'll be back in chapter 16 again this morning. And what's the purpose of Matthew? Just we're halfway through, right? We move from part one to part two. And so let's remind ourselves, what is the purpose anyway of a gospel? What is a gospel? Like The gospel, we have four of them, the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Well, what is it in terms of literature? What type of literature is it? What genre is it? Well, they actually reform, they resemble an ancient form of literature known as bioi, bioi, which is just, it just means lives. And they were Greek biographies. Bioi were written to tell the stories of great people and, and what they accomplished, but also to present them as a model. And we even do that today, don't we? As we read biography, we're learning about someone, but we're also learning about how to live faithfully if they had faithful lives. Well, that's what the Gospels are doing. So the Gospel according to Matthew is doing both. It's telling us who Jesus is, but it's also presenting Jesus as a model. It's telling us what Jesus accomplished, but also presenting Jesus as a way to live, to imitate, to model, to be emulated in terms of his life. And so Matthew is writing so that we would know who Jesus is, but also be like him. And then Jesus, of course, commands us explicitly to follow him. Last week, we looked at this threefold call of Jesus. He said, if anyone wants to come after me, it's an invitation to everyone. And interestingly, he's talking to his disciples. If anyone would come after me, three things. Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We looked at the first two in depth, but I felt like we just needed to spend a little more time this morning on that third one. Look again with me, if you've got your Bible open, Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 and 25. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for... Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would be my disciple, and remember, this was actually a common term. Jesus is not inventing language here. In ancient Palestine, it was very common. You would have a young Jewish kid, and he would go. Actually, this was the reverse, though. In ancient Palestine, the child would go find the rabbi and ask him. We see Jesus goes after his people and asks them. But in this culture, children would come up, young students, especially the brightest, and they would ask a rabbi if he could be his student. Can I be your disciple? The word is mathetes. And the best of the best would join his school and walk with him as his student. Before Jesus came, there was a very famous rabbi named Rabbi Hillel. He had 70 Mathetai, math, disciples. After Jesus, there was Rabbi Akiba. He had five, very common. Plato was a mathetase of Socrates, a disciple. There was this first century blessing, very common. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Because at the time there weren't classrooms and of course there weren't paved roads. So you would walk behind him, and if you were really Blessed to be that close and learn from you, be covered in his dust. And Jesus says, if anyone would be my disciple. Disciple means learner or student or pupil. But it's more than just information. There's a real danger in churches like ours. Churches that rightly take theology so seriously that we would only focus on the information. It is certainly information, but it's more than that. It's also a way of learning, a way of life. This is why I like follower or even apprentice. Of Jesus. An apprentice typically follows a master, right, in order to learn his life and how to conduct one's own. Think about what an apprentice does. They come along an expert. We still use that language for various trades, don't we? For plumbers or barbers or electricians. Come alongside them and you learn all the information, all the ins and outs of a certain trade, but then you also learn to follow the way of the master. So they hear, yes, but they also see and do. So a disciple is an apprentice of Jesus. We follow Jesus. We're with Jesus. We're being transformed to be like Jesus and we join Jesus' mission. So I think we ought to start using this language more often, especially in Abilene. Are you a Christian? Ah, uh, it depends on what you mean. I'm a disciple of Jesus. Or I'm a follower of Jesus. Because there's a lot of Christians in the city of Abilene, right? I wonder how many, though, are actually following the Lord. Even in the New Testament, Christian is used only just a few times and it's usually used pejoratively. It's an insult. But disciple is used in the New Testament 268 times. And so the way not to mislive is to be a disciple of Jesus, to follow him. And we always want to remind ourselves that the call to follow Jesus is not a call to gain your salvation, to earn your salvation. The foundation is and must be grace. Remember, this this theological biography of Jesus is headed somewhere. It's headed to a cross and a resurrection an ascension where our sins are forgiven and the debt is paid. So the call to follow Jesus is not a call to earn God's love. It's a call to follow Jesus because you have God's love. It's an invitation because your sins are forgiven. It's an invitation to the good life. And of course, we can't do it on our own. We are dependent upon his power to follow him and Jesus would go on in the next book, volume two of Luke, acts and pour out the spirit. And so we're dependent upon the power of the spirit to follow in the way of Jesus. We can't do it on our own. But we can't emphasize forgiveness to the neglect of obedience. There's really two equal and opposite errors. There can be churches or Christians that focus exclusively on the work of Christ. We do that a lot here. I think rightly so. But then there can be churches and Christians that focus only on the life of Jesus. But we've got to have both. We've got to have doctrine and devotion. Christianity is more than a set of ideas. It's a philosophy. In the old way of saying it, a philosophy in the old way was not just information, it was a way of life. It was not merely thinking about life, but it was a way of instilling attitudes and training people to live in a certain way. And that's why again and again in the book of Acts, you know what this movement of Christians was called? The way. Let me just read one example, Acts chapter 9, verse 2. And asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's what the church was called in the book of Acts. Until this morning, I want us to focus not so much on what to believe or even what to do so much, but is how to live. Jesus says, follow me. What does that look like? It's To order your life around the life of Jesus, to adopt his lifestyle. We follow him by organizing our lives the way he organized his life. To follow Jesus, we obey his teaching and we imitate his life. So Jesus says, Follow me, not just follow my teaching. We've spent a good time on the teaching and who he is. You notice my, uh, this is about as much of a prop as you're ever going to get from me. WWJD, remember it was all the rage in the 90s? I'm bringing it back. <laughs> what would Jesus do specifically if he were me? Well, what have we seen? Again, we've just finished part one. What have we seen in this theological biography that is meant to tell us who he is, but also shows how to live? What have we seen about the lifestyle of Jesus so far? I think we could say a whole lot, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to mention 11 marks or practices of Jesus. And let me just tell you, I was more convicted this week than I have been in a very long time. And I'm praying that you will have the same conviction because where there is conviction, there's life. So let's look at Jesus then and kind of have an overview of where we've been in the Gospel of Matthew. What was he marked by? Number one, he was marked by faithfulness. In other words, obedience. Jesus was faithful to the Father. He cared about (laughs) obedience. He said, not my will, but yours be done. In fact, this this word for do is used some 22 times just in the Sermon on the Mount alone. Chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus says, do 22 times he cares about faithfulness, He cares about our lives, he cares about obedience. Uh, flip over to Matthew chapter 7 with me. It's the conclusion. How does he conclude the greatest sermon ever preached? Get Matthew 7 verse 24. How does he land the plane here? Every then, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. The way of Jesus is the way of obedience. It's the way of faithfulness. Second, what do we see with Jesus? His compassion. Jesus is so compassionate. And we learn he's lowly. He's humble and gentle. He cared. Like deep down, there's a word often, and it's like he felt from the gut. He heals the paralytic and he says, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. He looks at the crowds. He was very tired. And what does he say? He has compassion for them, for they were harassed and helpless. He sees the people in in need and his heart goes out to them. The way of Jesus is the way of compassion. Compassio, to suffer with others. Another thing we we notice in the life of Jesus, third, is he's just unhurried. It's fascinating to me, right? This is the son of God. He comes to restore his people, fulfill the promises of God and save the world. And he waits 30 years to begin his mission. He starts probably around 12 as a construction worker. The word carpenter is actually much broader than just woodwork. There's actually not a lot of wood in Jerusalem. He's a construction worker. And he works from 12 to 30. And then when he begins his ministry at 30, he takes a sweet time, doesn't he? He had built in margin in his life. For people, he was, he was present in the moment. He was available to others. He was unhurried. He was constantly being interrupted. And he was happy to turn his attention to others. This is so convicting to me. You know what? We were, I noticed this when we were in Matthew chapter 8. Look at Matthew chapter 8. And really, 8 and 9, you see it just happen again and again and again as he's making his way. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. And just notice how much he's interrupted and and how glad he is to care for people, even though he's kind of got a mission of saving the world and all. He's on his way to Jerusalem. We would probably sprint. We'd have a trail of bodies behind us. Chapter 8, verse 1, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him, and behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Then look at verse 5, When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. Then look over at chapter 8, verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Then look at chapter 8, verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs. And he responds with compassion in gentleness. Chapter 9, verse 2. Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. He's just trying to get some rest. He's just trying to go pray. Interruption after interruption, chapter 9, verse 18. While he was saying these things, he's talking to them. Behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter's just died. So he gets interrupted by this ruler. Come lay and lay your hand on her and she'll live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who'd suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I can touch this garment, I'll be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. We need to learn the ways of Jesus, I think, as much as ever today, the unhurried ways of Jesus. I think it's tied to the fourth way of Jesus that we see so far in the gospel, and that is solitude. Silence and solitude. Look over at Matthew chapter 4. Verse one, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Flip over to chapter 14 of Matthew. Look at verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. Then look at chapter 14, verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while his disciples while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. So Jesus regularly does this. In fact, the Gospel of Luke says Jesus often withdrew to pray. He absolutely valued and made time alone with his father. He, he knew that even he needed to take time to get away from the hustle and bustle and noise and pray. And we think we don't. Jesus had this kind of slow down spirituality about him. He meditated on scripture and he was prayerful. He would fast in order to draw near to God. I wonder how much time in your day do you get to be quiet with the Lord? How often do you remove yourself from people and your phone to be with the Lord? Do you do this? Do you fast at times to draw near to God? Do you pray? If Jesus needed to do this, how much more we? We tend to hate solitude though, don't we? We're scared of it. We hate boredom. Stay busy, stay distracted, keep it on. Recent Microsoft survey showed that 77% of young adults answered yes when asked the following. When nothing is occupying my attention, the first thing I do is. Reach for the phone, don't we? Get in line with the post office. I'm here. There's people around, what am I gonna do? Let me dull myself, distract myself because these five minutes will take an eternity if I don't. You know what? The same survey asked people 65 and older, that same question, what's the first thing you do? Or sorry, when nothing's occupying my attention, the first thing I do is reach for my phone. For those 65 and older, it was not 77%, it was 10%. Wisdom. Solitude and silence. Fifth about the way of Jesus, he was, he was committed to truth. No one had a higher view of the word of God than Jesus. Remember what he says in Matthew 5 about scripture? Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's the Old Testament. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus cared about the truth. In fact, one of his biggest problems with the religious leaders of his day is they didn't care about God's word. Do you remember what he said in Matthew 15, verse three? Why do you break the commandment of God? For the sake of your traditions. He rebukes them because they're not valuing truth. They're valuing their own truth. And what do they receive? They receive a rebuke from the son of God. Jesus knew scripture. He leaned on scripture in his walk. And when he was tempted, remember Matthew four? Flip there with me. Right after his time of solitude, he meets the devil himself in chapter 4. And notice what he says in verse 3. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written. When the Son of God himself is tempted, how does he respond? It's written. It's written. You want to tempt me in some way? I've got a verse for you. And notice what he says in the verse Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He was committed to truth and he went about teaching. That's what he did. In five different places in this gospel, he's got these long sections of teaching truth, most notably Matthew 5, 6, and 7, right? The Sermon on the Mount. He was a man of the word. And that's what he wanted of his disciples. He and John both, they weren't afraid to tell the truth, even when it was countercultural and potentially offensive. Remember, it cost John the Baptist his life. At the end of the day, it cost Jesus his life. And so we should love the truth, because Jesus loved the truth. We should tell the truth, because Jesus told the truth, even when it might cause people to not like us, even when it may make us unpopular, right? We just need a little more boldness today when it comes to our commitment to the Word of God. D. James Kennedy, a pastor in Florida, said Most of the world fears the raised fist but Americans fear the raised eyebrow. Chapter 23, Jesus has these really sharp words to the mistaken religious leaders of his day. And Jesus told the truth because he loved people, right? It's the truth, Jesus says, that will set you free. Another characteristic we see is simplicity. Jesus both taught and modeled the way of the simple life. When he sends his disciples out, he says, don't acquire any money, no bag for your journey. He tells some, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So we need to hear what he has to say about materialism, which is one of his main topics, if not his main topic, because what are twin idols of our day in America? Consumerism and materialism. Jesus was just unencumbered by the things of this world. Why? Because he knew their futility ultimately. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. In the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, the longest section has to do with material possessions. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. It's temporary. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So don't be about that life of accumulation because it can't go with you, right? But he says you can pass it on. Store up treasures in heaven. So we need to hear this again because we live in a culture of affluence and accumulation. More, 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 always more. You know that little... Device in your pocket, which I have one, and I actually love mine. You've got to, you've got you've got to have power over it, not let it have power over you. But that thing is funded by advertisers. We've got to know that. By the way, if you've got Netflix, you really ought to watch a movie called The Social Dilemma. It's funded by advertisers, millions and millions and millions of dollars who want your attention and want your money. Advertisements abound. Some studies say that we see the average American sees four thousand advertisements a day. And their goal is what? The goal of an advertiser is to make you discontent and then to monetize your discontentments. And so we just need to be aware. We need to be on guard. And of course, what is social media? Except your friends curating the best moments of their life and inevitably yours looks inferior, whether it's because of their life or because of what they have. More, 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 more. Did you know that storage units make up 2.3 billion square feet in the U.S. alone? Last church I was at, I shared that statistic and had a nice conversation with the guy who owned like all the major storage units in the city. (laughs) I don't think we have that guy in Abilene. Just to show you what that means, that's enough for every single American to have over Seven square feet to themselves. We could hide every American in storage units. It's a $38 billion industry. More, more, more. Scientists claim that it would take around five Earths for everyone on the planet to live with the same ecological footprint as the average American. American. So we need to hear this, this lifestyle of simplicity, it's challenging, especially for us. Now, there's this new wave of people, even secular people, modern writers and bloggers, YouTubers, and they're calling us to the way of simplicity, or they would often call it the way of minimalism. And one of these modern writers defines simplicity as this, choosing to leverage not just our stuff, but our time, money, talents, and possessions toward what matters most. That's a good way not to mislive. Choosing to leverage time, money, talents, and possessions toward what matters most. So Jesus lived simply. And we need to follow his example. He tells us that. In fact, you know what some, one of you ought to do? I don't have the time. One of you ought to like rally a major garage sale. We, we've done it before. We can have it right. Out here. It can be like a dollar. We can just like maybe invite like the the three blocks surrounding us, say, "Hey, Dollar Garage Sale! Give them a gift, give them a card with a little personal invitation." And then every member would be responsible for going all Marie Kondo on their closet, you know, going through every little item in your home. And it, does this add value to my life? Now let's bless a neighbor in the in that Marie Kondo. Does this spark joy? Have I worn this in the last six eight months? No, out. <laughs> Jesus knows that this mantra, "More stuff, more happiness," is bankrupt. It's bad math. And here's the thing, friends. Don't we know that as well? A new iPhone is dope until September. (laughs) A new whip is clean. Three months later, I should have got a moonroof, man. There's just something stitched in the human psyche where the new wears off really quickly. Well, Jesus practiced simplicity, and we should do the same. Jesus was very others-focused. There's never been anyone more others focused than Jesus. Really, it's just another way of saying love, right? Jesus shows us how to love. He gives himself for the church. 1 John three sixteen says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Jesus embodied his love for God by loving others. It's the way it always works. The vertical is really proven by the horizontal. That's why, when in chapter twenty-two, I'm sneaking, I'm I'm cheating, and going to part two. But in chapter twenty-two, someone tries to trick Jesus. Says, "What's the greatest commandment in the law?" And you remember what he says: Love the Lord with everything you are, holistically. But there's a second just like it: Love your neighbor as yourself. He even taught that we should love our enemies. Jesus was others centered. He embodied love. He embodied selflessness. He embodied service. Flip over to Matthew chapter 20, verse 25. His disciples are ambitious for worldly ambition. They want to be at his right and his left. They want to dominate. They still think it's a militaristic Messiah. Verse 25, but Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, the pagans, they lord it over their people, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servants. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's a different kind of king bringing a different kind of kingdom. And you'll notice what we've seen in the Gospel of Matthew is Jesus' is others' focus, but isn't he committed to a certain type of other? Who's he going after? The marginalized, the pagans the enemies of the people of God, Roman soldiers, the lepers, the diseased, the afflicted, the oppressed, the epileptics, the paralytics, the demon-possessed. He's other-centered, and he's others for the sake of the marginalized. We see that, especially in Luke. Someone has said in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is making his way at tables of the others, of the others, the marginalized, the oppressed. You know, there's three times in the New Testament that says the Son of God came. Excuse me, the Son of Man came. The Son of Man came. Three times. One of them, the Son of Man, I just read it, came not to serve, to be served, but to serve. Luke says the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. But the third time we read of the Son of Man coming is in our gospel. Matthew eleven nineteen 19 says this, the Son of Man came eating and drinking probably not what you would have guessed. Someone who said Jesus eats his way through the gospel of Luke. He's constantly at the table with the down and outs, with the marginalized. He's others focused. Next, he's missional. He's on mission. And his followers must be too. He commands his followers in fact, back in chapter 4, it's the first time Jesus said, "Follow me." And what does he say? He says, "Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men." To follow Jesus is to be about the mission of God. That's why he also prays in chapter nine, the harvest is plentiful. Pray for more workers for the fields. We must be on mission. Jesus went around preaching and teaching the gospel of the kingdom and we should do likewise. Jesus was about peacemaking. Jesus practiced peacemaking. In fact, remember the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. He cared very much about personal peace with one another. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter five, remember he gives this example of someone who's there at worship. Basically for us, it'd be there at corporate worship. They're about to put their offering in the offering box and there they remember, Jesus says, that they've got something that a brother's against them. What does he say? Keep your money, get out of corporate worship, go make that right, then come back and worship. Matthew five twenty three. Jesus cared about peace and he, and he practiced forgiveness. Those who refuse to forgive are about as far from the way of Jesus as they can be. Not seven times, but 77 times. Jesus was whole. I lost count. The next one, he's whole. And what I mean by that, he was integrated. He, he talked the talk, but he also walked the walk. His external matched his internal, unlike the religious leaders of his day. Right? The ones he's after. They looked one way on the outside, but they were entirely different on the inside. That's why Jesus in Matthew 23 gives the examples of, they're like dirty dishes that you just clean up the outside. That does no good. Or he mentioned they're like tombstones that have been washed. They look good, but actually what's in the tomb? Rotten bones. Jesus was whole. He practiced a righteousness, not just externally, but from the heart. That's why he says what he says in Matthew 520. He says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And remember, externally, they didn't get any cleaner. They looked really good on the outside. But Jesus says, you better have a better righteousness. And what does he mean? He means a righteousness from the heart. Not just avoiding certain things on the outside or doing certain things. He wants a heart for the Lord. That's why he concludes chapter 5 with these words. You, therefore, must be perfect as your Father is perfect. This word here doesn't mean to be without sin. That would be impossible. We know that. Jesus himself taught that. What does he mean then? The word is teleos. Can be translated mature or blameless, entire, complete. The idea is wholeheartedly complete, having a unified heart for God, a singleness of devotion, being unified in heart and action. That's what Jesus was, and that is our goal. One New Testament scholar says to say that disciples must be teleos, perfect, mature, as God is teleos is to say that they must be whole or virtuous, singular in who they are. Not one thing on the outside, but another on the inside. That's where we want to be. You know what that means real practically is? Christians are those who regularly, always repenting of known sin. Always. Repenting of known sin, and it never goes away. Our whole lives, God will be convicting us in areas, and what are we to do? Shore up those areas the best we can. Jesus was a disciple-maker. He called disciples, he taught them, and he showed them the way, and he commands us to do the same. Model and teach the way of Jesus. Help others follow him. Help others, to use the language we use here, submit every area of our lives to his rule. Make disciples, how? Baptizing, teaching, teaching them all that Jesus commanded. And what did Jesus command? Follow him. Well, how on earth are we supposed to do that? We can't, but we must. We will fall short, which, remember, is why Jesus is going to the cross. It's where he's headed. Cross, resurrection, ascension, pouring out of the Spirit. And so we can and we must because God commands us to follow Jesus. In fact, 1 John 2, let me read it in a few different translations. 1 John 2, 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Another translation, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Another translation, Who those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. This is really what makes a true Christian. Are they living like Jesus? So we're to model what it is to look like to be a community under the rule of the king. God is becoming king through his Messiah, and his people put that rule into effect. How? By following him, bringing his rule, his way, to bear on earth as it is in heaven. What does it look like when God takes hold of his world? Jesus shows us. He healed, he loved, he fed, he celebrated its characters by love and grace and justice and humility and sacrifice and worship, holiness, peace. Forgiveness, reconciliation, hospitality, community, wholeness, unity, celebration, prayer, mercy, compassion, generosity, and beauty. Man, what a compelling picture, isn't it? And he launches us, this new spirit-filled community, to be a sign of that. Just a foretaste of that. A preview of it, a poster of it, a scent of the society to come a community that shows forth his sovereign rule over all of life. And so we enjoy and mediate the blessing to the nations, and we are a paradigm example of what it means to be a restored human being through Jesus. We're an outpost of the kingdom. Okay, so how do we get there? A whole lot more to say, but I just want to mention just a couple basic things. Really, one, we've got to abide in Christ. What one author has called practicing the presence of God. We need this constant awareness of and connection to Jesus. You could call it intentionality. Call it what you want, but you need to be mindful of the Lord. Here's how one author puts it. The first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to Him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God, but these are habits not the law of gravity, and can be broken. A new grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon, our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star, north star of our inward beings. Isn't that the battle? I mean, how much better would your life be If the Lord was constantly before you, that's the battle in your work, in your conflict, in your marriage, in your parenting, is the Lord in this. And so we need to order our lives. It's the way St. Benedict in the 6th century talked about it. He had this rule of life. And I want to submit it to you to consider I'm teaching this manhood class on Wednesdays, and one of the first things we did was build a life plan, and I think it's actually helpful to write it out. If you're interested, just Google life plan. You'll find lots of templates. Actually write down, am I ordering my life? And for our sermon today, are you ordering your life around Jesus? Are you following him? You know, we tend to be a rule-averse people. I don't want any rules. Sounds too stuffy. Sounds too formal. But let me just ask you, how's it going for you? You know, business gurus will say that our systems, whatever it may be, our systems are perfectly designed to give us the result we're constantly receiving. So whatever you're doing, it's perfectly designed to give you what you're getting. And maybe you're following Jesus and you're flourishing spiritually, great, keep it up. But maybe I need a new system. You know what the definition of insanity is, is doing the same thing over and over, expecting different results. So maybe you need to reorder your life a bit. Maybe it's time to consider a new rule of life. This word rule comes from the Latin regula, meaning like a straight piece of wood or even a ruler can also be used for a trellis. Trellises are designed that the vine might grow and flourish. They're a means to an end. So we want to have our schedule aligned with our values. It's going to look different for all of us. But we need a rule of life. One website, I think it's called Practicing the Ways of Jesus, described a rule of life as a schedule, set of practices, and relational rhythms that organize our entire life around abiding and allow us to live in alignment with our deepest desires. I would change that last part and say into the way of Jesus, which really should be our deepest desires. And so let me just ask as we close just a few questions. What are some ways you can get started or reordering in some small ways? One really easy one is how do you begin and end your day? How do you begin and end your day? Do you have a plan? Part of this is having dominion over your own day. Do you have a system? Do you have a rule? How do you start your day? Those bookends are really important to framing our day. And as Annie Diller said, what are our days, but our, what are our lives, but our days? Our days are our life, right? And so how do you start and end your day? Guess what 90% of Americans do? First thing they do is pick up their phone. Neuroscientists, we're really in this big social experiment with smartphones that we really won't know the implications of for another decade. I can't wait for that decade to be here. You notice like all the big tech people, the tech big tech people are now sending their kids to schools where there's no tech allowed. The big tech people will not allow their children to have devices until they're 16 and 18. It's like the, whole, the, the old rule, Biggie Smalls, don't get higher on your own supply. They know, <laughs> they know. Neuroscience are saying the last thing we'll do The last thing we do and the first thing we do has the greatest neurological impact on the plasticity of our brain. It's forming us. We're being formed. And I just wanna say, friends, looking at your phone first or last, it's a really bad idea. That's a bad habit that you ought to break. If you're starting your day with email or work stuff or social media rants or likes, the latest rampage of whatever it is, letting news set your view of the world for the day, blasting open those adrenal glands, first thing in the morning, those adrenal glands, last thing at night. Man, get away from that. Andy Cratch has a really good book called uh, The Tech Wise Family. And he says, we need to parent our phones. It's really what we need to do. We need to parent them. We need to be in control of them, not them in control of us. Let's make the quiet time great again. Wake up and spend time with God. Pray. Hear from your father through his word. Meditate on his word. Get a plan. Get a place. Get a system. And prioritize the Lord. Make sure you're getting enough sleep. Get exercise. When it comes to being simple, do you have a budget? Are you ruling your life? Are you giving generously? Are you practicing hospitality are you having people over again at least now we're just talking about this we have really strong desires to be hospitable and it, weeks just keep passing by and so just last week it was like we got to build a system we got to build a system every third Thursday of the month it's just what we do got to have a rule or it's just gonna we're gonna fizzle it away and look a year's gone by and how many people have we had over Do you have a system? Do you have a rule? Block off times. Have people over on a systematic basis. Prioritize when we gather because here, friends, as much as any time is where you're formed. Preaching to the choir, but come when we gather. Nine o'clock Sunday school. Service here. Wednesday night classes. Right now we have men's and women's children. Sunday nights, first Sunday nights. Just block it off. It's a given. You're here. Commit to a deager. Block off one hour a week where you're gonna spend time with other believers helping one another do just this. Help one another follow the Lord. And what's the goal of a rule? It's to grow in our awareness of God at all times. We start and end our day in these ways to try to shape the whole day. Again, the goal is just to have the Lord before us. What would Jesus do in this moment? Here I am, I'm presented with this challenging opportunity, whatever it may be, or not a challenge. Here I have five minutes free time. What would Jesus do in this moment? I'm to follow him. Psalm 16:8. i I've set the Lord always before me. And so I would just urge you, friends, build a plan, have a system, take life by the horns. It is slipping by. Haggai would say, give careful thought to your ways. And I would say, give careful thought to your days because your life is your days. I would say, do not mislive. How do you do that? Follow Jesus. His way is best. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle gentle. And lowly and hard, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Pray with me. Father, we're thankful for the cross as I've considered this week, and I'm sure all of us have considered these ways we fall incredibly short. We think about some of these marks of Jesus, and in many ways, our lives all too often. Aren't Not only they're not faithful, sometimes they reflect the opposite of the way of Jesus. And so we confess our sins to you and we, in the very next breath, give you thanks that you're not surprised by our sin. Jesus lived a certain way and it ended a certain way and that's because he knows that we're going to fail. So we're thankful for redemption. We're thankful for forgiveness. Thankful for the good news. Thankful for the cross and the resurrection and the gift of your spirit that we might be empowered to live better. And I'm thankful for the ways of Jesus we've seen. His example is to be our example, and he really shows us what it means to be truly human. And so help us, Lord. We want joy. We want life. We want to save our life, and we're thankful that you've told us the way to do that is to lose our life for his sake and to follow him. Give us grace to do that. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.